Good morning, all. Man, I am so glad to be here. I hope that you are too. Um, I know that it would have been much more comfortable for you just to to roll over and get under the covers and listen to the rain, just hit the roof. And yet you're here. You braved all of that and you came here. And I know that uh, that there's going to be such a value added to your life today. And I also believe that if you were to take this message and not to just add value to your life, but also I think you're going to see that there's there's a value to be added to others' lives through you um, based on what you're going to hear today um, through the Word of God. This is week two of our series called Nehemiah. It's in the book of Nehemiah. Probably figured that one out. But here's, I have an observation. I've had this observation for a little while. And and one of the things that when I was studying this particular passage of scripture, I see some the the specific attribute of Nehemiah's life that I'm going to highlight in a few minutes. But I think that what we're going to see today is we're going to see a path between who it is that our culture is trying to make us to be. My observation is this. And it's a, it's a fairly straightforward observation. It's this. We live in a society that is trying to decide who we're going to be. We live in a society that's trying to force us to decide who we're going to be. And they're only giving us two options. Are we going to be more socially minded or are we going to still going to be the rugged individualist? Because the rugged individualist, that is in the fabric of our country. As a matter of fact, that's how most of us were raised. We, we were just raised in such a way that says, if you want something, you've got to do it, what? Yourself. And it's, it's the rugged individualist, and it's webbed all the way through us as a people. And yet, if, if I'm honest, and this is my observation, we could, we could uh, agree to disagree and still be friends, even if you don't believe that these are the only two options. But I believe right now, society is forcing us, just forging us into these two options. And I'll be honest with you, I don't really like either one of them. I really don't, I don't want to be the socially minded person. That one who I think of a a caricature of this would be Peter Pan. You rich from the, you take from the rich and you give to the poor without the person's consent. Like, I just don't like that as an option. But also, I don't like the other option either where the rugged individualist is somebody who's like John Wayne. Who grew up with John Wayne, by the way, on TV? Of course, John Wayne, not his real name. His real name is not as strong as what he appeared on screen. Um, Anyone? John Wayne? Am I the only one? A couple. Yeah, John Wayne's still one of the best movies of all time is the movie Green Berets. Um, if I watch it in totality, it will still bring a tear to my eye, and I've seen it numerous times. But we have been really succumbed through the generations, through the, through the generations and decades, that this is the type of person we need to be. We need to be John Wayne, who is the, he is the, the caricature on film of the rugged individualist, at least for my generation and perhaps yours. It's like we need to be this kind of person because this kind of person doesn't need anyone, doesn't need the church, doesn't need Jesus, doesn't need God, doesn't need a wife, doesn't need kids, don't need friends. All we need is to do our own thing and to get what we want when we want it. And I'll get it when I can, whenever I can get it, but I don't need to rely upon anyone else. That's the rugged individualist. And now we see this politically Of course, with the last political cycle, the socially minded would be who? Bernie Sanders, right? And then the the rugged individualist, like a nationalistic version of this, would be Donald Trump. And I have to be honest with you, we as a country got exactly what we wanted, did we not? And yet we got what we wanted, but now we have a distaste in our mouth and we're like, I don't know if I really wanted what I said that I wanted. And what I want to show you today from the, the scriptures is I want to show you that there's, there's actually a path between these two. 
Because if we were to live our life and if we're just to succumb to who culture is trying to form us into being, what we're gonna do is it's like driving on a slippery road. It's like you drive on a slippery road and you see one ditch on one side, so you wanna avoid maybe the, the socially minded side. No, 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 I just don't like, I don't like those ideals. And yet what we, what we tend to do as people is we say, whoa, I don't want that ditch. So then we overcorrect, we overcorrect and then we end up in another ditch that we also didn't wanna be in. What we're gonna see in the scriptures is a path between. But first, I need three competitive people to come who are willing to come up here. I need three competitive people. All right, I need, I would love to have an adult. I really would. Any adult that's competitive. Clint, are you competitive? Come on up here, Clint. You're already standing, come on. Clint, come on up. Um, We will allow some minor trash talking too, just so you know. Jerome, come on up, and Mac, come on up. All right, I've got this one, and I just want you to know, so far today, I'm the reigning champion. I had seven in the 915 service, um, and everyone else was a failure, but um, that's just between me and the Lord. So here we go. I'm the yellow one. This is not rigged. Let me give you the rules really, really quickly, okay? We're going to be kind. We're at church. All these people are watching, including, like, your parents and stuff. So just pay attention, all right? So here's how this is gonna go. We're, we're only gonna have a certain amount of time and the goal is, is to press down the lever until all these little marbles get taken up. The one who gets the most marbles at the ends wins. If a marble falls out, don't try and be sneaky and put it into your spot. We're not gonna allow that. That one doesn't count, all right? All right, I need y'all's help. We're gonna do a countdown. I've never done this before. I love new things. So what we're gonna do is I need you guys to do a countdown from five, Go. Oh, we're back. All right. Let's count them up. Jerome, do you really need to take them out of there? You can look at them, dude. I have five. Oh, really? Now you are trash talking. I got you. All right, Jeremy won. Give it up for all of them. Very well. Very well. We play games at church. You can tell all your friends now. This is awesome. This just illustrates a very good point. And really, it it illustrates the exact opposite of Nehemiah's life. And it illustrates the exact opposite of what we're going to see today in one of Jesus' teachings in Matthew 5. This perfectly portrays the, the, the hungry, hungry hippo reality of today. You see, the reality today is uh, largely, n- not all, but certainly most of us would fall into the category where we're tempted to be the rugged individualist. And the rugged individualist will nudge everyone else out and the rugged individualist will then try and do just like this game, gobble up as much as they possibly can. It's a life rooted in self. It's a life rooted in, well, I have to make sure that I have the right boyfriend. I have to have the right car. I have to have the right contacts. I have to have the right house. I have to have the right job. I have to have the right career path. I have to have the right friends. I have to have the right friends that I'm not necessarily close to, but everybody else thinks I'm close to to make me seem like I'm socially a little higher than in a class than I actually am. And all of these things are rooted in this ideal of rugged individualism that I don't need anybody. It's a matter of how I look around other people. So we go out and we get a new house and we put that picture on Facebook, not because we're not not necessarily because it's great. We want to honor God. We want to honor ourselves. Look what I've done. 
I get a new car in the dealership. I saw this yesterday from a friend of mine, the picture that they get their picture taken with their brand new car. And man, let's put that on Facebook. And there's not anything inherently wrong with that and bragging on what God has blessed you with. But I just have to ask you the question, is this rooted in rugged individualism saying, look what I've done, not what God's done. Look what I've done. Look at the relationship that I have. Look at the career path that I have. Look at the college, the college that my kids went to. Look at the clothes that my kids have on. Look at the sports activities they're involved in. All of that is rooted in the hungry hippo life. It's saying it's all about me. But here's the problem with all of that. When we get all we think we want, we'll be let down because this is not fulfilling enough to satisfy the soul. You see, we, we can go our whole life and we can nudge other people out and we can make ourselves look good socially. We can put our kids in all the right activities. We can go to the right school and make sure our kids go to the right school. We can put on airs like, man, we are really something. But when somebody gets up to say words over your life at the end of your life, all they're gonna say is some hollow phrases that have no meaning that if we go just full force into this the rugged individualist if we just go all into it and we say you know what I don't need anyone I was raised to be like John Wayne I can fix it myself I don't need to ask for help I don't need anything from anybody and this isn't just a man thing this is also a woman thing and some of us unfortunately are raising our kids with the same false belief I'm so glad the scriptures paint a better picture. So we don't have to settle for one ditch only to crash into another. I'm so glad that, that Nehemiah's life portrays something so beautiful. I'm so glad that the teachings of Jesus are coincide with Nehemiah's life and there's something that we can do. So we don't have to settle for just being socially minded. We don't just have to settle for being the rugged individualist, the person who doesn't need anyone or anything. Instead, we can have a life like Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah was burdened by God to do God's work and he leveraged a lot to make it happen. That's what we're gonna see in this passage. He was burdened by God to do God's work. Last week we talked about that, that the vision for your life, the purpose of your life, the, the thing that it is that God maybe put you on the planet for, it starts with a burden, with a divine burden, with something that God has placed in you. It's something that's unshakable. It's just in you. It's down in your bones. And when you get to your true self, when you get to your true heart, the heart that God is, is wanting to nurture and develop in you, then he will just, I believe it, he will give you a burden that's not just for a life to live for your benefit, but ultimately, like Nehemiah, where you'll be able to leverage that burden, not for your own life, but you'll step up and you'll speak into the lives of others. Nehemiah 2 is where we're going to be. We're going to look at just a few verses, and then I have some other verses to help all of us to make this make sense. Verse 1, chapter 2, book of Nehemiah. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? 
Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone would come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. We're going to go through this passage, and first thing I want us to see is starting in verse 1 and 2, is we see that the king identified Nehemiah as being sadness of heart. Sadness of heart. But even in the midst of this, when Nehemiah, when Nehemiah started with this burden, he didn't just go out and act on that burden. He didn't just make a flippant decision and say, oh, I feel this way emotionally, so now I need to go do something. Because, and you don't see it here, but I'll just give you the detail, and between the events, what we talked about last week and what we're talking about right now shows a four-month span. So he sat with this burden and he prayed to God about this burden. And instead of the burden going away, the burden got deeper within him. And the burden now is deep in his bones about this people living in Judah and in Jerusalem. And he was burdened about the affairs of God's people. Although he himself was living a very comfortable life, being right next to the king. But he's burdened for people who weren't even necessarily his family, weren't even necessarily his friends. But he was burdened because God had burdened him deeply. I love the fact that he waited four months to take actions. I believe this firmly. Visions often burn out because they're started way too early. That maybe God has a vision, a plan for you. Maybe there's something you're supposed to do and all of your zeal, you just want to run into it and go do it. But maybe you don't have the character that it's going to take. Listen to me carefully. Maybe God needs to work on your character so that when you do this, the vision that God is calling you to do, then it will be sustainable. But if you go to the vision too early before your character is there, that vision will eat you alive. There's been many men and women of God who have fallen out of ministry, have fallen out of doing work for the Lord because their character couldn't sustain their calling. The same thing can happen to you and the same thing can happen to me. Visions often burn out too early because they burn out way too early because they're started too early and they haven't allowed God to do the work of the heart. Some interesting things about this particular passage. When the king notices Nehemiah's sadness of heart, you and I would look at this and we would say, well, what's the big deal? This is actually a huge deal. Because the, the eastern kings in those days, they protected themselves from unhappiness. 
They were a picture of rugged individualism. They lived for themselves for their name's sake. It was, they were the king. What was going to be their legacy? How big could they get their kingdom? And they protected themselves from people who were unhappy. As a matter of fact, Esther said this. She also, her lifespan was around a Persian king just the same as Nehemiah's. This is what it says in Esther 4.2. He, meaning Mordecai, went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. You could not go up to the king if you were mourning. They didn't want to deal with emotional baggage. They only wanted smiles in, uh, when people were around them. They weren't willing to deal with the real issues of the heart. Some of us have a real issue with this too. We protect ourselves from feeling We protect ourselves from sharing the way we feel with other people. Some of us, we need to maybe have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, and maybe it is in your community group, you just need to be honest about the sadness of heart that you have. And maybe you just need to go into that, those relationships and say, I am sorry that I have been living a facade. I'm no longer going to settle for what, who you think that I am because on the inside, I'm really hurting. And as Americans and as being rugged individualists, we don't hurt well. We get defensive, we posture, and we hurt others. That's what we do as Americans. But what we need to do, if we're going to model this, if we're going to model really what it means to be a follower of Jesus, if we have a sadness of heart that we can be honest about our emotional state. When Nehemiah would go in front of the king, he in essence was risking his life by being, by just going in there with the appearance that he was sad. The king could have taken his life, but he didn't. Nehemiah, he goes in front of the king boldly because the gracious hand of his God was upon him. That'd be the very thing that motivates him the whole way through. And Nehemiah was so burdened. But in the midst of this, Nehemiah, the, the path that he chooses is not the one of what I'm calling rugged individualism. He doesn't go in and, and demand anything of the king. He goes in with the honesty about his emotional state, how he has a sadness of heart. And then he goes in and he talks to the king and the king looks at him and the king understands, he sees it. It's written all over his face. And with some of you, I have to be honest with you, if you're to be honest with your friends, just know they, are, they, are, they already suspect how you feel. Because more than likely, it's written all over your face. Some of you, unfortunately, you write it all over your Facebook so everybody sees it. And I didn't mean that to be funny. But I want you to be wise. Because your testimony may sit on what you post on social media. And you don't know who's looking at it. You don't know if there's somebody who's far from God and you blast somebody. Or you, you just openly talk about things as if you don't have a relationship with God. What are people going to think about your testimony? We have to be wise and discerning when it comes to things that are in the public nature. At the end of verse 2, Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. He was very much afraid. 
He was afraid of what the king would say and he was afraid of what the king would do. But he knew that he had to go out in front of the king because the gracious hand of God was upon him. See, when God is calling you to do something, there should be a healthy reality that you're in over your head. And without God's intervening, you will fail. This is, this is the sweet spot. This is the storyline of Jonathan and the armor bearer. And, and they're about to do something so risky and God's leading them to do it. And, and the armor bearer and Jonathan are having this conversation. And Jonathan says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. He's like, perhaps. He's like, I, just, I believe God's leading us to do this. And God did act on their behalf and something miraculous happened on that battlefield. Also another battlefield is when all of the, the rest of the nation of Israel and, and even the king, King Saul, was there and standing in front of Goliath and everybody was looking at that whole situation. Everybody was cowering back in fear. And yet there was a little shepherd boy who says, you know what, I believe that God wants me to do this and I'm gonna do that. He clearly was in over his head. But he clearly relied upon the presence of God in his life and the presence of God in that situation to take down the giant. But there's some people in here who need to go out and have that conversation, trusting that God is leading you to have that conversation, not worrying about the consequences, but understanding that God is putting you in the middle of that, of that conversation. Some of you need to go out and start a nonprofit and you've been sitting on your hands and you've been waiting for somebody else to do it. And maybe it is that God is calling you to do the work. Maybe God is calling you to do what you're supposed to do. Instead of relying upon me or another person on the ministry team to do it, maybe you're supposed to step up and serve. Instead of as a parent to sit back and let everybody else serve your kids, maybe you're supposed to set up and say, you know what, I'm not even the best parent, but I, I want to I love, I love uh, the people of God well. I want to love those who are far from God. And maybe you just need to step up and volunteer in, in DBC Kids or in Arise, but stop waiting for somebody else to do it and step up and doing it. Step up and do it yourself. Of course, you may feel like, I don't even know if I can do it. That is exactly where God wants you to be. He knows all the details. What you need to do is to say yes to the obedience that he's leading you to say yes to. Stop making excuses. Stop blaming it on other people and just do it. The reason why we can do it and we can do it with confidence if you're a follower of Jesus why I can speak so boldly about this is because I know ultimately that failure is not fatal because Christians are at first God's kids. Failure is, is not fatal. We're, Christians are first God's kids. This is what it says in Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship and by him we cry out Abba or Daddy, Father, an intimate connection. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So failure is not fatal. The reason why we can go out and do things when God is calling us to do it, and we can go out and do it. And sure, we need to have wisdom, and he'll provide wisdom, and we need to have strength, and he'll provide all that. We need to, we need to maybe budget our time and budget our life well and steward our life well, of course, and he will lead us to do it. But the reason why I can say so confidently this morning that I know that it's going to succeed for you is because first, if you're a child of God, you're never going to lose that no matter what you do.
Another passage that speaks into this is John 1, 12 and 13. It says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, that, he, that God gave the right, that Jesus gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a, of a human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. That's who God says that you are. That's what God has done for you. You may have committed your life to Jesus and done your part, the, 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 the human responsibility part, but it's God's part. Now you're a son or daughter of God. Failure is not fatal. You're not gonna fall out of the family of God. You can do the thing that God is calling you to. You can do the thing that even you, that you believe that, man, I'm, I'm, I'm in over my head. But if God's calling you to it, he's gonna bring you through it. God's kids are supposed to imitate the Father. For you were once darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Just live as children of light. For the fruit of the, of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord, is what it says in Ephesians 5, 8, and 9. We are to live as children of light. We're to imitate the Father's work. This passage, it mentions three different things. And I want to ask you this question. The first thing it talked was, was goodness or being good. Would your friends think that you're a person who's just a good-hearted person? Would people look at your social media feed and say, wow, they're a good-hearted person? That is directly connected to your testimony. That is directly connected to the, the watching world, those who are far from God. That is directly connected to your ability to evangelize them, which is what we're supposed to do. The second thing of being good, the second part of this is righteousness. Would your friends and family who are either close to God or far from God, would they say that you're somebody who always stands for what's right? Would that be your testimony? Is this the life you're currently living? You're like, I, even if you're willing to stand alone, like I'm gonna stand for what's right. Even if it's unpopular, I'm gonna stand for what's right. Even if it means I have to make some hard decisions about those that I love, I'm gonna stand for what's right. Do people know that about you? The last thing. So it was good or goodness, righteousness. And the last thing from this passage is truth. Are you a person that others would know that stands for truth, that even if unpopular, wildly unpopular, even if everybody's willing to do this, that you're willing to toe the line of God's truth. Is that your testimony? See, those who are made right by God will live righteously for God. The character trait that we see in Nehemiah's life is meekness. Is meekness. Jesus said this about being meek in Matthew 5 5. He said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Meekness is controlled strength. 
Meekness is, is the very thing that says, you know what? I don't need to go out and hungry, hungry hippo life. I don't need to go out and gobble up all the material possessions. I don't need to worry about what I look like. I don't have to brag about what I've done. I don't have to brag about my, my brokenness. I don't have to brag about my successes. I don't, need to, I don't need to try and dominate my wife. I don't need to try and control my husband. I don't need to, I don't need to, to helicopter parent my kids. I don't need to do any of those things. I don't need to exert my strength on other people because I am controlling my strength because of my relationship with Jesus. That's some things that meekness does. I love what Eugene Peterson said about meekness. He says, you're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. He says, you're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more and no less. Wow, because if you have this, you don't need to try and control other people to get what you want. If you've got this, you don't need to try and prop yourself up around others because you know who it is that Jesus says that you are, that you're one of God's kids. If you have this, people are gonna look at you and say, I don't know what it is about their life, but there's something clearly different. They seem to love well, They don't control others. It seems like they always support their boss. It seems like they always err on on the right thing. It seems like they're just a good-hearted person. And no matter what goes on, even if they stand alone, they are a person of truth. Peterson continues. He says, that's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. He says, that's when you find yourself to be the proud owners of everything that can't be bought. I have six things that I want to add to this discussion about meekness or being meek. First one is this. A meek person knows the effects of their sin and the effectiveness of the Savior. You see, a a meek person doesn't have to be the rugged individualist to try and seek their own gain or control people, manipulate people, manipulate their spouse or their kids, not worried about, about how popular they are, not worrying about what I've got to have what everybody else says that I have to have. Instead, the, the meek person says, you know what? I, I understand that, that all of us have a quality at the base of the cross. We're all in desperate need of a savior. I, I, don't need to, I don't need to elevate myself up over other people because in the eyes of the Lord, I am one and the same as everyone. I'm in desperate need because I know the damning effects of my sin. And also, the meek person, the person that can be blessed by their meekness is a follower of Jesus. Back up one slide, please is this person, they know the effectiveness of the Savior. Is they know, yes, I, my, my sins were condemnable, but I've been freed from the condemnation of my sins. I've been made right with God by the work of the cross. This is the beginning point of meekness. The reason why we don't have to promote our own well-being all the time, we don't have to prop ourselves up. The reason why we don't have to defend ourselves is because of this. It's where it starts anyway. The second thing is this. Meekness is passionate living propelled by Jesus. Meekness is passionate living. Then if we can say and be honest about it that the gracious hand of God is upon me, like Nehemiah said, if you can truly say that, then you can live a passionate life. By being meek, it doesn't mean that you just sit at home and you don't tell anyone and you don't share your faith. It says, no, no, it's, it's not that at all. Instead, you can be passionate about the thing that God has put in you to be passionate about. 
But as a consequence to that, you're not going to pursue petty things to be passionate about. You're going to be passionate about the things that God is passionate about. Third thing is this, about meekness. Meekness is trusting God without treating others like they are less valuable than you. You see, meekness, if you know where you stand with God, that you are one of God's kids and you're going to imitate God as we're supposed to do from the passage that I read to you, if we're to imitate God as one of God's kids, then we can just trust in God without treating others like they're less valuable. Part of the the rugged individualist nature is this. We seek our own value. It's rooted in self. I don't need other people. Therefore, what I want is more valuable than what you want. My life is more valuable than your life. And as long as I get what I want, I don't care about about you getting what you want as long as it doesn't infringe upon what I want. But meekness is trusting God without treating others like they're less valuable than you. That means you don't have to dominate people to get what you want. That means that you don't have to have your, you don't have to have a title on your name to make you feel important and to make people, other people feel less important. Meekness is you have a right standing with God and that, that type of life then becomes attractive to the watching world because then you're open to others instead of closed to others. Another thing about meekness is this. Meekness ultimately is dependent on God's direction. Because you've, you're God's kids. You're trusting and, and declaring the gracious, the gracious hand of my God was upon me. If you could say that with honesty like Nehemiah. And therefore, you don't have to seek to gain your own control because you've given up control to God. So then he provides the direction for your life and the path that you need to go in. Meekness is trusting in God to meet your needs without imposing strength to get your way. Men, let me talk to you for a minute. We tend to have a real issue with this. We tend to have a real issue with this. And if you've been church for a while and you've been taught that you are the, the leader of your home, men, it is so easy. It's like paper thin, so easy for you just to fall into the trap where then you try and dominate those who you believe are under your leadership of the home. And while the husband is the head of the home, as it says in Ephesians 5, that doesn't mean that you go and you impose your will upon other people. Because if we're to be blessed or if we're to be meek, like Jesus says, you're blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, then we don't have to go out and impose our strength to get what we want. Instead, if we're meek, we have a controlled strength. Then we have the ability not to dominate others, but to empower others, which is really what the purpose of that whole doctrine of male leadership in the home, that's what it's about. Not a man getting what he wants, but that the man sees to it that everybody else thrives in that home. We continue. The rugged individualism dies when meekness thrives. If you're someone, you submit your life to Jesus, say, you know what, Jesus, you take it. I've given my life to you. I no longer feel the weight of my sin. I don't feel the shame anymore because of you, Jesus. My life is hidden in yours. I don't need to impose my strength upon other people. When you do that and you make that commitment to God, the rugged individualist in you dies 
which then in turn allows the, meek, the meekness to thrive. In verse 3 of Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah said, When the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. See, Nehemiah could have gone on a, a big political rant right then. As a matter of fact, let me add another scripture into the equation. Ezra 4.21 says this, Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. You see, the king had the ability to to basically build the city up or tear the city down. Nehemiah, when he, was, when he was confronting the king, he didn't go in with this big political rant of the reason why this city is in a shambles is because of you and it's because of who the leader before you was. He didn't go into it and says, you know what? If you'd have done something years ago, my, my people wouldn't be suffering right now. He didn't go through and didn't say, you know what? Because of you, now you are the problem for all of this. He wisely engaged in this conversation without a political debate. I wonder how many times Christians lose influence with the watching world because we're so busy arguing about petty political debates. I wonder if people either look at our social media feed or they listen to us at work, the things that we talk about, and I just wonder how much influence we have given away unnecessarily because we are so bent on political things instead of the things that are good, the things that are righteous, and the things that are true according to God's word. I wonder how much of, of the, the influence that you would have with your friends and your, your, your coworkers and your family, I wonder how much influence that you could gain back if you decided, you know what, I'm not going to engage in the political debates anymore. Instead, I want to leverage all of my influence, all of my, my relationship to build others up, to share the love of Jesus with them, and I'm not going to allow my political persuasion to get in the way. I wonder how many lives would be changed by your testimony if you did nothing else but change that one thing. Nehemiah could have done that, but he wisely didn't. He asked in verse seven, he asked for these letters. These letters would be important. He asked for two different types of letters. He first asked for some letters um, to the leaders in trans-Euphrates, and this is basically for safe passage through this area. And he had to have the letters because if then he was confronted and they thought, well, what are you doing here? If he would have had Artaxerxes' letters, then he says, no, 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 I'm here by authority of the king. But he also asked for letters for timbers from a gentleman by the name of Asaph or a group of people uh, under that namesake. And he says, not only does he ask for safe passage, which is a bold ask in front of the king, who he could have been killed for this as well. But then he also asked for, for supplies. He says, could you see to it that the keeper of the forest could give me timber so that when I get to do the very thing that you burdened me to do, that I will have the resources to do it. He boldly asked that. And from this short passage, I have two connecting ideas. When God motivates, he funds. And when God mobilizes, he fuels. When God is spurring you to action, God is, is burdened, he's motivating something within you. He's gonna fund your ministry. He's gonna fund exactly what it is that he's spurring you to do. He's gonna resource you to do his work. That's what he's gonna do. He may use other people. He may use uh, just your savings. He may just use someone else's generosity. He could just blindside you with just a wonderful gift. But I know this, 
undeniably, I've lived it, I've seen it, I've counseled people through it. When God motivates somebody to do something, he funds it. And secondly, when God mobilizes, that means that you're beyond the point of motivation, now I'm mobilizing, I've got, I'm about to do something. He fuels, he gives the energy, he gives the resources, he gives the relationships, he puts you in the situation where you need to be to do the thing that he's asking you to do. We just need to say yes. Last week we said that the vision, the purpose for your life, it starts with the burden. And this week we see the motivation. With Nehemiah, that's what we see, the, the grand motivation of everything that he did wasn't himself. Honestly, it wasn't even just the people. It wasn't even just the city. It was what we read a moment or two ago when he says, the gracious hand of my God was upon me. That was the very thing that motivated him to action. Nehemiah was burdened by God to do God's work and he leveraged a lot to make it happen. I have a very short list of things that were leveraged. First, he leveraged his life. He leveraged his life. When he went in front of the king, he was leveraging his life. He was, in essence, putting his life on the line to give those bold asks of the king. Second thing, he leveraged influence with the king. The king could have not liked it. He says, you know what? No more are you going to be a cupbearer, but instead you're going to be in charge of the sewage department. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. He leveraged influence Third thing, he leveraged money. We see this later in the book of Nehemiah. He leveraged his own money. It's easy to leverage somebody else's money, right? He leveraged his own money to do the work. He also leveraged time. He put his life on hold. And we read just a moment or two ago, he put his life on hold. And when, he, when the king had asked him, when are you going to return? Nehemiah thought about it and he gave a response. Nehemiah was not planning to build a palace to where he would be the king in in Jerusalem. Instead, he was building the city up and he planned on full well going back to his position as a cupbearer to the king. He leveraged energy. He poured his life into the rebuilding and revival and he leveraged his passion. He leveraged his passion. You know, I know we've, we've covered really the gambit of things, but my hope for you is that you and I won't take the bait on thinking there's only one or two options. Well, we either have to be socially minded or no, 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 we can't do that. And then we have to choose the, the other thing that culture is force feeding us that we have to become the rugged individualist. But I hope that, that the scriptures have clearly shown us that the way in between, is in, the way to avoid the two ditches is the way of meekness. It was the way of Nehemiah. It's the way of Jesus. Jesus perfectly portrayed meekness. When he prayed the night before, the night of, but then um, of, of his betrayal, but the night before his crucifixion, and he prays, and he's, he's praying this, this amazing prayer to his father, and ultimately he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. The ultimate prayer of meekness. I'm not going to Control. I'm not going to try and gain, use my strength to take myself off of the cross. I'm not going to use my strength to take myself away from the beatings. Instead, Jesus walked into it, knowing those that he would save. So that was Jesus' life. That was Nehemiah's life. I want to ask you two questions. The first question is this, and this is on the topic of, of dreams you have. How many of your dreams just revolve around you? 
How many of your, your dreams revolve around, at the end of your life, having everything that you want? Because at the end of your life, if all of those dreams revolve around you, and even if the hidden desires of those dreams revolves around you, you're going to get the end of your days and realize that you lived a very hollow and shallow life. But how many of your dreams have to do with making the world a better place? How many of your dreams revolve around making the world a better place? How many of, of your dreams revolve around recognizing the, the broken people around you and thinking about how you can use your life to help fix a social problem? How many of the dreams of your life are centered around your family and friends who are far from Jesus and who are condemned in their sins? How many of your dreams revolve around this, this desire, this motivation, this, this burden that you have to go out and to reach people who are far from God? You see, that would make the world a better place. How many of your, your dreams centered around the fact that, that you're just, you just want to give to those in need? Maybe just creating solutions to cultural problems instead of just blasting everybody on social media as if you have all the answers, but not taking any action. Instead, maybe for you, it's to give a little bit less opinion and a little more action. A little bit less words, a little bit less conjecture, a little bit less divisiveness, a little bit less rugged individualism, and a lot more meekness. And when you center yourself there, you become the person that people speak well about. You become the person who others are drawn to you because your life looks different than theirs. A life of meekness draws people in. Rugged individualism pushes people out. Which one of those two would change the world? Which one of those two? Let's pray together. Jesus, you are more than enough. You did perfectly portray meekness. And you did so publicly. This wasn't just behind closed doors. This wasn't some hidden level of faith. Your belief, your meekness was on display. It was displayed with hands stretched wide. with feet nailed to a cross. A cross set in the middle of two other crosses. And you're the only one who didn't belong there. But you went there for sinners like me. I thank you, Jesus, that the gospel is true. That the word of God is is alive and active and sharper than every two-edged sword. I thank you that the community of faith is so rich. And I thank you that you've gifted so many people to do so much good in the world. And Jesus, I pray right now you'd meet us right where we are. 
Meet us in, in our doubts. Meet us in our questions. Supply us with meekness so that we can be the change that the world needs. Pray it in the saving name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>